0: you to part one of our three-part interview with our very special guest, Jim Elvidge. Jim holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He's applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies, entrepreneurial ventures, and leadership consulting. Outside the world of high-tech, Jim has years of experience as a science researcher keeping pace with the latest developments in such fields as quantum physics, quantum physics, cosmology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and metaphysical anomalies. This unique knowledge base provided the foundation for his 2008 book, The Universe Solved, which presented evidence that our reality may be under programmed control. His research and theory has continued beyond the simulation hypothesis and incorporated powerful ideas around consciousness, cultural synchronicities, quantum anomalies, and a true scientific foundation for digital consciousness Theory, which is what we're going to be talking with him about tonight. I should also add that Jim is a good friend of this show. He's a co-author of our book, Visions for a World Transformed, and we're going to be talking about his new book tonight, Digital Consciousness. Jim, welcome to The World Transformed.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Phil. Uh, it was great to be uh, on with you again on The World Transformed. Uh, we go back a long way. We've had uh, quite a few shows together, so it's uh, always great to talk to you.
0: I think, you know, the first time we talked, it was before – Universe Solved was quite out yet, right? So we've, we've, we've been talking about this stuff for a while. It's, uh, it's yeah, exciting so. to see how these Almost things have come. Almost 10 years. Yeah, yeah, it goes back a ways. So here's the first question I, I think that everyone's going to want to know the answer to. Okay, so why did the guy who already solved the universe feel like he had to write another book, right? What, <laughs> what else is
1: there to do, right? Yeah, great question. I mean, to be honest, the, the titles of the books uh, aren't you know, exactly representative of the book, The Universe Solved Doesn't Really Solve Everything. It's a great title, though. Um, and it was, uh, you know, the first book was basically, I think, kind of uh, novel at the time because uh, although there were some other people thinking about the same kinds of things, um, but it was more about the evidence supporting the idea that we are living in a, a digital simulation of some sort. Um, we could talk about what that word means in a, in a bit. Um And it didn't go much beyond that in terms of, uh, you know, how does it work, uh, what's behind it, things like that. I was pretty much agnostic about all those things. But now 10 years later, a lot of people have kind of jumped on that simulation bandwagon, scientists and, uh, you know, media people, Elon Musk, others, uh, you know, you read articles about this kind of thing all the time. And the thinking has actually gone a little bit further, a little bit deeper. You know, the basic ideas are the same. However, um, in this book, what I've done is really tried to make more of a scientific argument for it, um, you know, and that, the purpose of that is you know, there are a lot of people on the fence about these kinds of things, and, you know, I'd like to give them something to really think about and to think, okay, you know, it, it makes sense when you look at it from a, you know, scientific methodology standpoint. Um, you know, it may uh, be a little bit more impactful that way. In addition, I created a, a visual model of, how it all works, and so every one of the anomalies we talk about, um, any one of the you know different areas that this explains can be shown in a visual model in the, in the book, so it makes it a lot easier for people to understand and in addition there 's just tons more evidence and things to to think about um, uh, the, the The final thing I think I brought into this book, which was missing in the first one, is a real connection to uh, ancient religions, Eastern religions and spirituality, um, ideas like that. And it's, it's, it's important because these things don't come out of nowhere. They're not, not just made up. And the fact that they're very much aligned with what we'd be talking about tonight is surprising in a way, um, but it's also, you know, more impactful, I think, as, uh, as evidence for, you know, the, the, the truth of this kind of uh, theory.
0: For sure. Well, I I enjoyed the book immensely, and I would just, in response to what you said about the the, the process of putting it together, I noticed that there's a heavy scientific component, as there was in the first book, as there was in The Universe Solved, setting up kind of the, the science of it, a lot of physics in there. And I was reading your book at the same time, coincidentally. I happened to be reading Our Mathematical Universe by Max Tegmark. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. There's some kind of dialogue between those two, and we'll get into that a little bit uh, down there. And I know there's some distinct differences as well. I realize that there are, but uh, some some interesting uh, common common threads there. And some other books I've been reading about physics lately, um, you basically, you lay it out, right? You You tell about what's going on in science and then what it really implies. And then what it really implies, we end up in this very different kind of book about spirituality and about the meaning of life and... Also uh, about things like UFOs and stuff like that, so it's uh, it's tremendously entertaining, but at the same time, really
1: covering an awful lot of ground, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And, and I read that book by Max Tegmark. Also, um, I like Max Tegmark. You know, he was uh, one of the guys that did some you know great thinking about parallel realities and parallel universes, um, in sort of different dimensions of that uh, idea. Uh, so uh, he was one who made the point that we've never measured anything to an accuracy below, I think, 10 to the minus minus sixteenth meters or uh, that many orders of magnitude. So, you know, when people argue that the world is continuous versus digital, they, they really can't make that argument because we haven't measured anything down below that level. There's really no evidence at all for a continuous reality. And, and he uh, he's also, I think, in support of that idea. A lot of scientist. Awesome.
0: You have just anticipated my first actual substantive question because what I what I thought we would do here is I wanted to set out this first show. I thought we'd talk a little bit about the kind of the scientific case for whether we live in a simulation or not. And my actual my first question I, I was just looking at it here is is the universe continuous or discrete? And here you are answering the question already before I have even asked it. So <laughs>
1: what,
0: what does that tell you? Huh? Right there, something weird going
1: on. Great minds. Yes. <laughs>
0: Okay, so uh shall I go ahead with that? Yes, I'm sorry. I, I I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just so excited. It's like, hey, he's answering the question before I even get a chance to ask it. So <laughs> yeah, so we live in problem. a discrete universe. Is that I mean that's
1: that's what the that's what the evidence seems to indicate. Yeah, and, and uh it may sound odd, but you know, when you think about it, why not? Uh it, I mean the ancient Greeks thought we lived in a discrete universe. They you know they coined the term atoms. You know, everything was uh, discrete from an atomic standpoint. Um, and uh, there were philosophers, I think Plato believed in it. Um, you know, so did Zeno. You heard of Zeno's paradox, even thinking about time being discrete. So it's not a new concept at all. Um, but, you know, as we look at things macroscopically, it obviously it doesn't look discrete. You know, you see flowing water, you see, you know, things that have texture and so forth, and it feels continuous. But you know then the question is how far down do you need to go before you determine that things are discrete at all? And you know quantum mechanics certainly uh, you know changed the way people thought about that because the idea of uh, energy coming in you know units uh, of uh, quanta uh, related to uh, you know Planck units and things like that. Um, that was uh, that was new. That's only 100 years old, so there was some real evidence that deep down things are quantized, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. I mean, if you look at an analogy, I've often used this analogy, like um, a rock dropping in water, you see um, discrete waves coming out, but those waves underneath, what's what's functioning in those waves is a continuous flow of water, but that water is made of atoms which are discrete units, but those atoms may be fields, you know, created by uh you know the the electromagnetic forces and so forth, and those could be continuous. But deeper down, if those fields are based on particles, say strings or you know even subatomic particles down, you know, when you talk about that, then that could be discrete. And you keep on going, you know, if at some point there's there's an answer there. And it's my belief that w- when you go deep enough, there really isn't any substance that it's really just information, and uh, that that you know would basically say it's a digital uh, discrete world based on information but, um, on the side of whether it's continuous or not, there's no data there's nothing that that uh, supports that other than the fact that at a macroscopic level it looks like that um, but then again, the Earth looks flat when you're walking around too. It doesn't look round until you're in outer space. So, you know, our perception of things depends on the scale that we're looking at. And to make some assertion about the Earth being con- or the, about reality being continuous based on a macroscopic view of it um, is is false. You can't do that. So then you ask the question: Okay, well, there's no evidence that the uh, reality is continuous. Is there evidence that it's digital? And you know, I mentioned the one thing. You know, the quanta of uh, of, of energy. Uh, you know, things at in quantum mechanics appear to move and you know be in you know, uh, discrete quanta um, of these units. Uh, that's one thing. But you could also uh, look at um, you know the lack of uh, evidence for things that are moving at a smaller um, you know level than that. So, for example. If we had continuous reality, that means that we have essentially infinite resolution of our space and our time. If we had infinite resolution, that means that there's something in there, there's some structure to it at an infinitely small level. Well, when there's something at an infinitely small level, then the inverse of that is infinitely large. Uh, Things that move have an inverse, you know, an inverse to a wavelength is a frequency. So the frequency, if if, if we had, uh, you know, a very um, infinitely resolvable reality, then we should see evidence of frequencies above one divided by the Planck length, for example, but we don't. Um, Hawking radiation dies out at the Planck length, at one over the Planck length. Um, so that's just one example of something that shows that there isn't something that relates to a um, a resolution you know below the Planck level that kind of implies there's something discrete there. Right. one other example oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry Phil uh, just one, one other example I'll throw out from the the field of uh, physics is the idea of spin values on particles. Spin values are always discrete. A particle either has um, you know an in- integral unit one two or minus one something like that or it has units of a half a half or minus a half or, or three halves something like that. There's never anything in between. So when there's a nuclear interaction, um, the, the spins of particles may flip from plus one-half to minus one-half, but they don't go through all of the other values to get down to the minus one-half. They go immediately, instantly from plus one-half to minus one-half, and nothing in a continuous world works that way. Um, so that kind of in, implies that spin values are discrete. And if spin values are discrete, then, you know, the, the, uh, the underlying reality is probably discrete.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, w- I was just going to say, to sum it up for people who maybe aren't familiar with all of the physics, what we're talking about here, the basic idea is I think pe- most people are familiar with the idea that matter is discrete. Ultimately, you can only break it down so far, right? You can take a
1: mm-hmm.
0: any object in front of you. If you keep cutting it in half, cutting it in half, and cutting it in half, eventually you get down to something called an atom, which it can be broken down into into smaller parts. But but the thing itself, ultimately, you hit a place where it's just a a fundamental chunk, whatever that is, right? Whatever that is, there's there's something at the bottom, right? <laughs> Beyond right. which you can go no smaller, and. Ultimately, what physics is telling us is that's true about everything, right? It's not just physical stuff, but it's true about it's true about space and time itself, right? That the universe itself seems to be ultimately discrete. It, it, ultimately, it's it's made up of small bits of something, and the analogy of bits is to to a digital system, right? That it's ultim like pixels. Finally,
1: right is is exactly, kind of exactly yeah. yeah, to. That, that we live in a kind of a pixelated universe, yeah exactly um it's pixelated in time and in space, and you know i I want to just kind of uh caution the listeners, the people who are listening to the podcast that the the idea of the world being digital doesn't take anything away from its beauty or what you can do in it it doesn't make it mechanical or uh, reductionist or automated or anything like that—it doesn't take away free will. Um, all, all it does is it means that it, it you know, the, the structure that it's based on is something different than what we might have thought about before. So sometimes people say, "Oh, that just sounds so cold and calculating" because we use words like digital or words like simulation. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't really have a good lexicon for this philosophy for digital philosophy. We use words that are already kind of loaded in people's minds, words like digital. When I hear that, I think about, you know, bits in a computer, and it it feels very cold and calculating. Um, But, you know, movies move people, and movies are digital now, and they're, you know, discreetly shown on a screen when we see, when we go to see a movie, we might see 48 frames a second or something like that, but it looks very continuous. But it's really just discrete um, uh, information uh, coming into our senses. So, yeah, so it's not a cold and calculating idea. In uh, fact, it's, you know, it, 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 it has nothing to do with things like uh, you know, beauty or flexibility or creativity or free will.
0: Yeah, it's the same place either way, right, whether it's continuous or discrete at bottom. Absolutely. So let's talk about this. Why are only simulation arguments consistent with technological evolution? You spend some time on that in the book, and I think that's really interesting. Why is it that the simulation arguments comport better with that than, than other ways of looking at
1: things? Well, I, I think a lot of this probably goes back to Nick Bostrom's idea uh, and his simulation argument. You know, the idea is that as we evolve our technology, and, and it's been for the last 40 years kind of advancing at, um, uh, at, at an exponential rate, uh, Moore's law says every 18 months or so, the you know, density of transistors doubles, the, the speed of processing systems double, and things like that. So, um you know, since we can now create some simulations, you know, you look at movies that are completely uh, fabricated, computer generated, or, uh, you know, some of the virtual reality experiences that you can have even on like a Sony PlayStation. They, they seem very real. Um, they look real to you. The sounds are real. Uh, you can look around 360. Um, and so even though you know, you know, you're in a simulation because you remember when you put the headset on. We're right. also experimenting with things like uh, uploading memories, uh, setting us to archiving memories, implanting new memories. They've shown the ability to implant memories, believe it or not, in, I think, worms or mice, um, you know, teaching them how to get out of a maze and things like that. So we're experimenting with that, and you, you can. it's not hard to imagine a future, whether it's Ten years out, or 20, or 50, a future where you're able to suppress your um, your awareness of the reality that you're in for some short period of time, load up a simulation, whether it's through a you know uh, an implant, a mind probe, some nanobots, or you know clumsy uh, haptic devices that you wear. Um, it's not hard to imagine this kind of thing being possible to the point where you can't tell the difference between that and a real reality. And you can't even remember that there was a difference. So if that's going to happen at some point, as the argument goes, how do we know that it hasn't happened already? And Nick Bostrom's argument is, you know, once we get to that point, that's the post-human um, uh, stage in, in his lexicon, then we'll create millions of these simulations. So the odds that we're living prior to it um, is, is very low. Uh, so either we don't get there at all by choice, or by you know the the uh, the fact that human, humanity will get destroyed, will destroy destroy our own, own civilization before we get there, or we do get there, and if we do get there, then we're most likely living in a simulation now. So the whole technology argument also lends support to this, but it's a different argument than than what I have, um, and it's kind of it gets kind of confusing because when you when you talk about uh, simulations within this reality, I believe that this reality itself is a simulation of sorts, so we're nesting our simulations really right right
0: and and of course, the
1: question comes up,
0: and we'll get to this probably in part three of this discussion as to whether we might be embedded in one of those, whether there 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 are layers and and what the chances are that we're that we're buried in one of those but we'll come back to, we'll come back to that because i I want to just kind of stick with laying the groundwork for why. It looks like, all things being equal, we live in a simulation. Why, that seems to be the best explanation. And another piece of that that you talk about in the book is the fact that we live in this very fine-tuned universe. Um, We live in a universe where if you changed any variable to a very distant decimal point at the beginning of the universe, we're not here, right? Mm -hmm. Planets aren't here, matter isn't here, or life couldn't exist. There's there's so many different ways it could it, it could have gone terribly wrong. And even when you get down to this planet, it's situated in exactly the right place. You move it a little closer to the sun, we wouldn't be here. A little farther out, we wouldn't be here. There's this whole amazing set of coincidences that all had to fall in place in order for humanity to exist. So this is one of the interesting challenges that scientists have to try to overcome. You You, you end up with this anthropic principle and there's a strong version of it and there's a weak version of it and there's this whole question of why did all these amazing coincidences happen? How did we get here? And you make the case that simulation pr- provides a better explanation for that fine-tuning of the universe than anything else that's out there. Can you, can you give us a quick recap of, of
1: why that is? Sure. Um, so just a, as an analogy, if I were going to design a uh, on a on a computer, a game that um, had a physics engine in it, it would all have to make sense. It would all have to fit. You know, the the people in the game who are discovering how fast things drop when you drop a rock in your virtual reality, um, and then kind of putting all this stuff together, would it would have to be consistent with how that game works. So, um, you know, there's there's the, the, the anthropic argument is a crazy one. It's basically saying. Well, of course, everything seems finely tuned for life and for uh, for matter and energy and so forth. And, and by the way, it's not, it's finally, it's just, it's almost, you know, hard hard to use that word because it's so incredibly perfect. Universal right. constants and vacuum energy cancel each other out to one part in one followed by 115 zeros. I mean, yeah, it's you, a ridiculous coincidence yeah, that we're here, right? It's absurd. Exactly. Yeah. Is that, it's absurd. So the the only argument could be, well, of course we're here because um, this is the only universe that um, that would have us. It's designed this way. But but that kind of that kind of implies that there's another, you know, ten to the hundred fifteenth out there. Well, actually, that's just one attribute. You know, you have to multiply all these attributes together. You know, deviations in uh, the the ratio of proton to electron, all these kinds of things have to be so perfect that to have enough universes out there where we happen to be in the right one it's an astronomically huge number so so the argument is well, there must be you know many universes there must be zillions and zillions of them, and we just happen to be in the one where everything just lined up and i don't know to me that just that doesn't pass the Smith test it and more scientifically um the concept of Occam 's razor. You know, uh, I forget. uh, William Ockham, I think, uh, came up with that. That the the simplest explanation is most likely to be true. Well, what's simpler? That there are zillions of universes created through some strange mechanism, and that we happen to be in the one that's that's absolutely perfect, or it was just designed that way. Uh, You know, that that the latter just seems to be so much simpler. Now, it doesn't mean that there's an entity out there like, um, you know, uh, an alien hacker or an AI that created our reality for us and is looking over us like the, the architect in the matrix. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It could be that the the construct of reality didn't work well at first and, and it's driven by some, you know, rule of continuous improvement where it keeps on modifying itself until things work and you know, eventually, over time, it's modified itself, itself corrected to the point where it is very finely tuned for the experiences that we need. Uh, Stephen Hawking even kind of explores something like that. I forget what he called it. Um, you know, you know, kind of a, a reach back mechanism where the universe could, you know, knowing that it has to get to a finely tuned state, it could reach back and change laws in the past through some quantum, uh, you know, anomalies. But but even that one is. You know, that that seems to be a little bit of a stretch. It's just simpler to say, you know, however it got designed, it's designed for us to exist. And that just makes sense. There you go. So if it's a simulation, it's by definition, in some way, design,
0: right? It's, there, there's some design principle right. that, has, that has been applied to get us here. And it just – you think about if you found I, – I know there's the old – and i don't know who came up with that a long time ago back in the middle ages or the maybe the during the enlightenment somebody had that the metaphor of the watch right a watch implies a watchmaker mm-hmm. and this was kind of the argument for the creation of god or that god created the universe but but just the idea if you if you're walking in a desert and you found an iphone right and you thought wow imagine the amazing coincidences that would have to occur in you know to turn the silicon in this desert into this object right you know it's ridiculous right, right? It, it makes a lot more sense to say there was some process, there was some design that that was implemented that that enabled this this amazing thing to to come into being. It just it it, it makes an awful lot of sense. Well, another idea that comes up in the book, and you alluded to it earlier, is this notion that matter is composed mostly of information. So we were talking before about things being discrete versus continuous, and discrete implies that you can break things down into into pieces. But as you said earlier maybe there are no pieces at the bottom, right, that ultimately mm-hmm. it's, it's just information. So what is, what is trending? What's happening in science that's leading scientists to believe that maybe matter is just information, maybe everything is just
1: information? Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating one to me. And, you know, I, I kind of use the idea of extrapolating a trend. Uh, so we we use extrapolation all the time. If if we know that the population is increasing at a certain level, then we can predict, you know, 10 years out it's going to be um, at a certain level for various countries. You know, they're predicting that the population of India will surpass the population of China in five years because they're extrapolating out the rate of population increase, um, as an example. Um, and as far as I know, no, nobody's thought too much about the idea of extrapolating what's really going on with the perceived definition of what matter is, but it's fascinating. If you turn the clock back a couple hundred years, even, even I'd say uh, late 1800s, the prevailing view of matter was still what the ancient Greeks had, which is, you know, we have these little billiard balls of atoms, which are hard, solid things, right. and yeah, and, and everything is composed of those. So like, it's like a universe made of ball bearings or Lego blocks or something like exactly. that. Right? Yeah, and they all respond according to some rules, and we just haven't worked out all the rules yet, you know. But we're we're working on that. Yeah. And and so sort of like the the ultimate density of matter. Then, if you if you were to put a bunch of billiard balls together, there's a little bit of space between them, and so if you decide define the, the constituents of those billiard balls, I use the word stuff because we don't have another you know definition. But you know something good word, physical and real. It's stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of empty space, and if you jammed a bunch of billiard balls together, the the ratio of um, you know of stuff to uh, empty space is like is like seventy some percent uh, the way it works out. Right. Well, in, in the early 1900s, Ernest Rutherford and some other scientists. Um, did these experiments where they found that oh my gosh the the atom is really mostly empty space it's this electron cloud with this tiny little dense nucleus so most of the atom is actually empty stuff in fact um, for for every piece of stuff there's you know one followed by 15 zeros worth of empty space Right, uh, right you know in that theory so the ratio of you know, empty space or stuff to empty space is one to the minus you know, one times 10 to the minus 15. Um, okay. So th- that was 1920s, roughly 1910, 1920s. Then in 1960s, uh quark theory came about and they, they found that protons and neutrons, these things that we thought were the indivisible nucleus of an atom, they're actually mostly empty space and they consist of quarks. And so now You know, if you do do the math, the ratio of empty space to stuff is 10 to the 30th. Well, the string theorists came along in the 90s and said, well, you know, even every particle, even quarks, are just made of strings, and the strings have a width of a Planck length, which is somewhere around 10 to the minus 35 meters. So those, even quarks, are mostly empty space. Now, this is where it gets interesting to me, because... You know, According to string theory, every single subatomic particle only differs from the other subatomic particle, and all the behaviors that it has and all its ways of interaction, it only differs because of the vibration um, of that string. It's vibrating at a different frequency. Well, if your string is vibrating at a different frequency, and that's what defines a different piece of matter, what do you need the stuff for? You just need the number, the, the frequency. You can derive... How the matter behaves and how it responds, and you can derive all the rest of the rules just by that that one number so with with string theory we're down to you know a tenuousness of space uh, you know of matter in space of one times ten to the minus fifty two you know even even within atoms and the the trend if you extrapolate this trend out, we keep on getting toward less and less stuff so at some point the direction we're going is there's going to be a recognition that there is no stuff. And a lot of physicists have already come to that conclusion that deep down uh, matter is just information. I think it was John uh, Wheeler perhaps that said uh, it from bit. It from bit, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm certainly not alone here. I'm not the one that came up with this idea. Um, I think I'm, you know, what, what my contribution here might be in this area is, this idea of the extrapolation of how tenuous matter is, and I plot it out in the book and show how, how crazy it is and where we're trending. We're trending toward the realization that there is no stuff, that it's really just information. The the harder you look, the
0: deeper you go, the better you get at looking for it.
1: The The more apparent it
0: becomes, there's nothing there, right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And, Max Tegmark talks about this in in his book as well, and it's, I think it's it's really interesting what it, it, when he talks about his mathematical version of the of the multiverse. And he, but but he's just talking about kind of the idea in his view that the that the whole universe is a is a mathematical construct, similar to the idea of being a, a digital simulation in some ways. But but he he works through that same thing, and he and and he says you know fi- finally you get to the bottom, and all you've got are these forces, which are really these mathematical relationships. You've just got these numbers. working against each other that's that's finally what you what you find when you get to the bottom there's nothing else there exactly and you know
1: uh, phil would you when you think about it i mean this is where it gets into consciousness too we we think there's stuff because we feel it you know when we knock on a door we feel something hard but there is no molecules in our knuckles that are touching the molecules in the door all it is is the force, the electromagnetic force between the molecules and the knuckles and the molecules in the door that are impacting us and giving our nerves the sensation that there's something there. So we don't ever really feel stuff anyway. And if you think about what we perceive, how we collect information, it's all subjective and it's all based on our consciousness, um, you know, collecting information through our our various sensory, uh, you know, organs that, you know, give us some sensation of stuff, but there really isn't anything. There's nothing. Finally, there's nothing there. It's
0: yeah, sensations. And, ultimately, are going to be numbers too, right? That's sure. to information too. Finally. Yeah, and
1: and you know what? The the there are so many like amazing physicists. I mean, the people who you know Nobel laureates, people who really thought out of the box, they they struggled with a lot of the same ideas. For example, Max Planck. He, he said, mm-hmm. I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. Max Planck said that. Albert Einstein said, reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. <laughs> and, and, and Niels Bohr said, everything we call real is made of things that cannot be regarded as real. I mean, these guys who were you know ex- experimental physicists and this stuff, they were coming to the same idea. Really, they just couldn't, I don't think they could put it together. I think you know, one of the advantages that that I've got and other people have here is you know two. One is you know media has made this more acceptable. Movies like right. The Matrix got people thinking about it. Um, computers, the, living in a computer world, and you realize what you can do with a computer has gotten us thinking about how how you know it seems to model reality very well. So we we do have that advantage, and the other advantage, uh, kind of a non-scientist has is scientist is a a person who has a very deep set of knowledge about a specific thing. But to be able to kind of connect dots and see bigger pictures, maybe not so much. I mean, some of them are really good at that, but, but others um, get so wrapped up in their niche that it's hard to see the bigger picture. And, you and, know, and I think when you kind of step back and look at, you know, what explains some of the things that are going on in the world, what explains this and that, um, it actually all kind of falls together like a jigsaw puzzle you know, if you take the simulation model.
0: One of the interesting ideas that jumped out at me as I was reading this, and I think we actually talked about this a little bit last time you were on the show, is this notion if ultimately it is all information, if, if it is just math down there at, at some level, then we're actually finding examples of where math equations – seem to be mm-hmm. driving reality itself.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, that's a good one. Even if we did talk about it before, it's a, a good thing to come back to. Um, there are uh, experiments that show that that equations appear to create reality. And, and the one example uh, that I'll use is... Um, Maxwell's equation, so you you remember uh, back in, you know, high school math days, you know, if you took a square root of something, what's the square square root of nine? It's three, but it's also negative three. But in some cases, you throw out the negative three. So, for example, if you were saying, um, you know, I have a, uh, a square that is nine square feet in area, how long is the side? Uh, well, the solution to that is to take the square root of 9, and you get two solutions. You either get 3 or minus 3. But it doesn't make sense to say the length of the side of a square is minus 3 meters right. or whatever. So you, you throw that number out. And the same thing happens when you have equations where you're taking uh, the square root of um, – you know, powers of of variables and things like that. You get imaginary numbers, uh, these numbers that are shifted by, you know, 90 degrees in the imaginary space, or you get some negative numbers like the square root of negative one that doesn't make sense. So you throw those solutions out. However, in in some, uh, you, you know, in some cases, those things that you're throwing out, if you don't throw them out and then you apply the further equation to it, that has things like, um, you know, artifacts or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Um, harmonics, Mm -hmm. Um, then those harmonics shouldn't exist if they're not coming from a real thing. So, for example, I'm throwing out minus three because it doesn't make sense in a real world, but that minus three is generating harmonics in the equation that are observable in the real world. So it doesn't. It doesn't follow. You see what I'm saying? You know, it's almost like the, the the equations are creating reality in that case, as opposed to the other way around. Right. Um, right. Another example was uh, James Gates, physicist James Gates, discovered um, what looked like error correction codes in the uh, the, the laws of uh, string theory. Now, string theory is not a proven theory, so I, you know, to me that that's not really evidence that there's Um, you know, that there's another example of equations creating reality. But it is kind of interesting that um, in the the best new theory we have in the scientific world, um, we're seeing error correction codes come out of what appear to be the laws of nature. Um, That doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless there's a, you know, big uh, digital system uh, going on
0: it's it's pretty amazing when you when you take just those three we've talked about here in a little bit of depth the idea that ultimately the world seems to be the universe seems to be discrete it seems to be digital right it seems to be pixelated uh, the the you go looking for the actual stuff in the world and you can't find it the deeper you look the more you find that there's just forces and those forces come down to these information relationships and the idea that ultimately the more we learn about how the physical world works it seems that actual um, mathematical relationships equations are driving the whole thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: that right there is a pretty good prima facie case right i mean it's, the, the, it, the, it is it is yeah you know the, the we live in a we, we live in a simulation i mean it's like what else could what else could possibly account for those three things
1: right and, yeah and the interesting thing though is like everybody will take one of those things and they'll come up with all these um, ideas that could possibly explain that thing, you know, well, what if, you know, physics, you know, if we bend physics a little bit here, yeah. but for for each one of those bending of physics, they don't line up on all of those different ideas. So try to bend physics to explain uh, beta decay being purely probabilistic. Try to spend, bend physics to explain Uh, These negative frequency solutions that I talked about try to bend physics to to explain, you know, some of some of these other things. And you can't come up with a theory that explains them all. The only thing that explains them all is a simulation theory.
0: Right. And and in fact, in the book, you
1: talk about even at this
0: introductory stage, you talk about some just real basic stuff that this accounts for that's pretty hard to account for elsewhere for example randomness in physical processes right Mm -hmm. Um, that's something that you can get in a digital model of reality that it's pretty hard to come by elsewhere
1: yeah exactly um yeah so i mentioned like beta decay uh, a a radioactive atom is going to decay according to some rule like it'll decay with a 50 percent probability over the next day uh, as an example that's sort of how how it works it doesn't mean it's going to decay an hour from now or a minute from now or a day from now. It might not even decay for a hundred years, but it it always has that probability of decaying. And um Einstein believed and uh, you know, or some other physicists that believed, there had to be something underlying this that explains that probability. There had to be hidden variables that would say, okay, well there's something going on here and as soon as this, you know, the state changes, boom, the thing decays. But um Bell and uh, Leggett and others uh, over the last, uh, you know, few decades and the experimental physicists like Anton Zeilinger, they have proven that there are no hidden variables um, in quantum mechanics. And that there's like this pure idea of a probability function. Well, there's nothing that makes sense, you know, in, in a continuous reality for that, you know. But I can program a probability function, Simply in, in a heartbeat, it's, it's very very easy to do in a computational uh, model. So
0: ultimately, when you when you start accounting for kind of why we're here, when you start answering questions better than other models are able to, and you start providing answers to some of these things that maybe people haven't even thought about. There's a, there's a good question to be asked there like you know like wh- why is the speed of light what it is right uh, in a in a digital model it just it makes perfect sense it's one of the parameters you set for the for the program you're running
1: right yeah and you know think about the the rate that it takes for um, something to move across a screen on a on a uh, uh, computer screen even a, a super high resolution screen. Um, there's some limit to how fast it can go from one side of the screen to the other, and that 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 limit is based on you know the the, the physics of of how it's built and so forth. So you know having a speed of light having a limit there um, it makes sense in a simulated world, but it doesn't make sense in a in a non-simulated world. And then ultimately, oh go ahead, go ahead. Yeah,
0: I was going to say ultimately you come to the biggest questions of all. For example, the question of a prime mover, right? What started the whole thing? This is mm-hmm. something that theology deals with, physics deals with, philosophy deals with, and a digital model reality gives you an answer to it, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. And, and I want to kind of do a quick shout out to, there are a lot of other um, people who have thought through these things. Brian Whitworth is one. Um, he's a, a science a researcher from uh, New Zealand or Australia. I forget which. But anyway, he, he also noticed a lot of these uh, similarities of information systems to reality, and the idea of a prime mover is simple. When you reboot a, a phone or a laptop or anything like that, that's a prime mover. You're starting it all over. You're, you're setting the the thing in motion. Uh, when you start up a new program, it creates the substrate for it and then creates the, the variables, and it creates the you know, characters and everything that you would need. Um, so th- there is no... Philosophical problem with a prime mover in a simulation argument. Um, so, so that's you know another area where uh, this this explains things that were you know previously considered unexplainable.
0: Right. Well, once you hear the word prime mover, once I hear it, and I think once a lot of our listeners hear that, you hear prime mover, and you're going to start thinking, oh, you're talking absolute ultimate questions of reality, right? The the question of God comes up at that point. And so that's yes. where I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this part of our discussion up and we're gonna pick this up in part two, which I'm calling God the universe and everything. And we're gonna we're gonna see where the digital model of reality takes us in terms of kind of uh, answering some of those bigger bigger questions because it's all there in your book. Sounds great. All right. Well Jim, great having you with us. I can't wait till we get to part two of this discussion.
1: Yeah, thanks Phil. I'm looking forward to it. Looking
0: forward to it as well. And thank you all for being with us. We will be back in part two with our discussion with Jim Elvidge. And until next time, live to see it.